Well, so good to have you here this uh, Sunday after Easter. I'm still wearing the Easter attire. I see you are not. (laughs) That's okay. Hey, um, it's great to be together. And he has risen. He has. He has. Hey, before we dive into God's Word, uh, in fact, would you go ahead, grab your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 3 in the Old Testament. should be somewhere around page 200, 250, depending on your Bible, uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Before we get there, I want to kind of build on what uh, Larry had mentioned about the Vertical Marriage Conference, and just uh, maybe from me as well here, uh, I just want to ask you to really consider being a part of that. A few reasons, a few Uh, opportunities with that. First, let me just kind of, you can see in the update there in the schedule, Pastor Chris is going to be taking the first session on Friday evening, going from 7 to about 8. I'm going to be taking the the next one there at 8 o'clock that evening, and then I'm going to be taking two sessions on Saturday morning, and uh, then we're going to be having lunch. Lunch will be provided, and then we're going to be having a, a variety of workshops, just depending upon stage of life, stage of relationship. And um, I am really excited about this. And I want for you to know that um, this is going to be taking up a major part of my time in getting ready for it, not just something that pulling up and just talking about. But I'm, I'm personally viewing this as very significant for our church family. So if you're single, um, whenever you hear marriage conference, when I was single, I'm like, I don't know if I ever would have come. Uh, but I want for you to know and I want for you to hear from me that I am intending that this will be valuable for you. Because frankly, Karen and I talk about, we wish we would have heard some of these things. Because oftentimes when you're single, you'll think, and by the way, whether that's young, single, older, single, uh, you know, unmarried, single, divorced, single, wh- whatever that is, oftentimes you think, well, that's in the future, we'll deal with that then. But the fact of the matter is what so often loses sight is now matters then. And uh, so singles for you and just life around you, I really want to encourage you to, to be there. I know Karen and I wish we would have uh, uh, if we had that opportunity. Also, if you have a strong marriage or a marriage that's just needing some tune-up uh, that's going well, uh, come. Uh, I will tell you, Karen and I, one of the most helpful things in our marriage way back in the day was our, kind of our mentors, uh, they led marriage conferences and uh, parenting conferences, and we probably went to those things five times each. And it started out, we just wanted to go because we were invited, and then we kind of went again and really got some. Then we started bringing people, and we started realizing that every time we came, seriously, we could have done the seminar uh, after four or five times. But every time stage of life changes And the Lord just used the same things we had heard before at that time in our life. And um, so I want to encourage you, whether single, strong marriages, or if you have a struggling marriage, um, I want to encourage you to come. I think this is going to provide you with tools to help you. It'll give you help and hope. Uh, We're not going to go complex. I'm taking this as simple as possible uh, uh, so that you can grab a hold. This is going to be very practical. Uh, in this and just even some things that you can be doing with it. Uh, If your spouse, if you're married, won't come, you come. Um, I'd like for you to do that. Now, final, before we get into God's word, I also want to note this. Uh, For couples that have kids and younger kids, this is a challenge. A whole Friday night and a Saturday, it's like, what am I going to do with that? Uh, I have kids. Just leave a box of Cheerios. It's all okay. No, um, 
I understand the added challenge of that. And can I encourage you to get creative? Maybe partner with someone or view this as a worthwhile expense. This isn't just for you. This is for your kids, okay? Kids need strong marriages. And uh, this will help them view it as an investment. Whatever you need to do, partner with some people. If absolutely, if, if you can't in some way, one of you come Friday evening, one of you come Saturday, and then plan a time where you share that together then and help each other and teach each other after that. Uh, with that. So I want to encourage you with that. Um, okay? So that's kind of for me, uh, whatever that matters. Um, really looking forward to it. want to encourage you to be a part of it. Okay, what book of the Bible are we in? Judges. Judges. If you're new with us, we're very big about God's Word. We want to study God's Word because that's where God's Word is at. And uh, so we're diving in. We are in this uh, process, these beginning kind of times. We're going to be moving on to the beginning here, but of Judges, but we're at that place. And as we get started, just a couple thoughts here. Number one, I put on the table, we are formulaic thinkers. We in our culture, we in our day as Westerners, we are just kind of by nature and by our culture, we are very process thinking people, planning people, formulaic, mapping things out people. Uh, um, that's just how we do it. We do it with our schedule. I love my phone with the schedule in it. You too? Amen. Get from God, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, um, I love that. Uh, I, we, we map out our schooling, our career. We map out our finances. We map out our retirement. We, we, we attempt to map out presidential elections. Uh, we, we attempt to match uh, to map out world events and where things are going to. Uh, we attempt even to map out human history with that. And, and, and one I want to bring here, I think this is so cool, we even seek to map out our universe. Now, the, the image that you see was produced by a, a bunch of Harvard uh, smarter people than I people in uh, 2011. It's a 3D map of our local universe, local is in quotes there, because it extends 30 million light years. And this was really the first time that, that this type of thing had taken place. And, 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 and I want for you to know, I'm not against mapping. I think this is cool. I think this is cool with my schedule on my phone. Uh, these are great tools. They're wonderful helps. I love processes. I love strategic planning. Uh, um, I like direction. I like purposes. I like goals. And in fact, even as pastors and elders, we've, we've put together initiatives for that we gave you earlier this year for 2016 of things. And even for the elders, one of the things that includes is, is putting together some more strategic planning for the next five years for us as a ministry. So I'm all about that and I enjoy that. And so formulaic thinking is not bad, but we tend to formulaic everything. Okay? We seek to do that with relationships. By the way, I just talked about the coming marriage conference. I don't know if you've learned this yet, but there is no formula for marriage. And yet everybody is looking for the 12 steps. And they think that can make it happen. But relationships are not formulas. By the way, the Christian life is not a formula. And yet we seek to make it that way at times. You know, 10, my, 10 minutes of my quiet time with the Lord in the morning and pray at meals, uh, go to church, serve at church, don't cuss, and you're good with God. 
kind of a thing. And, and we lay out the formula of things. We tend to formula the Lord himself. Like if I do A, he does B. And if he does B, then C happens. I mean, it's guaranteed. Um, we formula God. By the way, we formula God's word oftentimes. And by the way, again, this is within the context of formula things, developing things, patterning things can be helpful, but they can also get off what's going on. And by the way, the book of Judges oftentimes is talked about in a formulaic way. The book of Judges, if you read through a commentary, and, 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 and there is a pattern. There, there are some things with it that go. It's like there's this, this, this series of repetitious cycles of sin with God's people, and, and then there's this formula that works out, and, and, and it, there's truth in that. But so often what happens, I'll just say it, let me just say it straight up with you this way. If it's all a bunch of formulas, let's just hit it one Sunday and move on to the next. Okay? Let's just hit the whole book in one Sunday and then let's just go somewhere else. Because there's plenty in here, really. I mean, there's plenty in here. And yet in it, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to pop some formulaic thinking right now. Okay, so here we go, four things. Number one, I want to pop the bubble of life is a formula. It's not. Life is not a formula. And to think that life is like, if I get the right formula, I've got it, it's all a fantasy. That's fantasy thinking. By the way, we've already talked about relationships are not formulaic. Hey guys, just ask your girl. She'll tell you. Right, ladies? <laughs> no one wants to respond too strongly on that. A relationship with God is not formulaic. But wait a second, Doug. Isn't God the same yesterday and today and tomorrow? Yes. Well, therefore, he does the same things all the time. No. Just because God is constant does not mean that God constantly does everything exactly the same. And yet we want him to, don't we? Because that's just how we think. By the way, the book of Judges is not a formula. Are there patterns? Yes. Are there repeated patterns? Yes, there are. Then it's formulaic. Don't go there. Because friends, I think you know here at, Har at Harvest, I love story. Because story is real life. And when we get into formula, we miss real life. And today, we have a crazy cool story. And to just turn it into a cycle, one, bore me. Number two, you miss so much of the Lord in this. Okay? So, so um, I, I like formulas, but we're not going to overdo this. But I want to start it this way, just to get us going. Okay, let me... Right before we dive into the passage, let me formula out a couple things. Chapter 1 of Judges. What is chapter 1 of Judges? Chapter 1 of Judges and mapping it out is about a map. It tells, picking up after Joshua, it tells where what's taking place on the, the geographic map in the Middle East at that time. It's telling us what's happening there with the tribes. Chapter 2 comes in and adds to the map and adds the reality of what's going on in the hearts 
By the way, I'm pointing here. What's going on in the heart of God's people? Because it's how we think. It's how we process. That's what's really going on. We in our culture, we think heart is the emotional side. And that is part of it, absolutely. But it's also the emotions and the thought and the thinking process and how we move and, and do things. In back, chapter 2, verse 10, it says, the, the, God's people did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. How sad is that? in the generation at that time. Two Sundays ago before Easter, uh, we, had, uh, we were in chapter three. We were in verses seven through 11. I'm gonna read them here in just a second, but it's the first account of kind of these many accounts coming out after the map and the heart of the people. It's getting down boots on the ground. We're in the second story of that today in chapter three, verses 12 through 13. 30. Uh, we're going to get at this. And by the way, you're going to go through this and there's parts of this that you're going to cringe. There's parts of this that you're going to get uncomfortable about. There's parts of this that you're going to be a little disgusted with. There's parts of this that you are going to laugh at. You ready? That was a long introduction, but we're going. Okay? Listen, let's take off the formula thinking we're in God's word here. Let's hear what the Lord has to say. So Lord, help us to hear and to see you. Right, church? Amen. Amen. Let's go. Judges chapter three, a couple Sundays ago. Let me pick up verse seven. Uh, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's sad. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of C.R., remember, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served C.R. for how many years? Eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and by the way, I talked about how I, I'm not convinced that was a true repentance. I, I actually think they're crying out because it's like our situation really stinks, Lord. Come on, make it better. I don't think this was true repentance. Uh, different people vary on that, but uh, uh, that's what I think. Then the Lord raised up a deliverer, even though I don't think they fully repented, just the Lord is good. The Lord has ra raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. His name was Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. He judged Israel. In other words, he led Israel. He was like the key leader of Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Sear, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Sear. So the land had rest, how many years? Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Uh, we see real quick this first uh, real boots on the ground event of what's going on we're told about. God's people are kind of messed up in their relationship with the Lord. And, and the Lord's been long suffering in that with them. How long? I'm not quite sure. I'm just going to leave it that way. The text right here doesn't tell, so I'm going to leave it at that point. Later on in the series, I might be bringing some dates and some time periods in. But right now, the Lord was patient with them, long suffering with them, waiting for them. But it comes to a point in time where he disciplines them. They cry out. God raises up a man of character who goes to war. They win. God blesses. Uh, all serve the Lord until, uh, well, we'll see here. I'm betting today's the same formula. Like they did evil, then they cry out, then God raises someone up and then, and then gives them some blessing. Uh, yeah, you, you'll see that, um, but uh, don't enter that way. Instead, let's enter this way. This is a crazy story. This is a crazy one. 
And if you like assassins, here we go. We are about to meet God working through a left-handed Maximus Decimus Meridius. And if you don't know what that is, let me try it this way. We are about to meet a left-handed Jack Bauer. If you don't know what that is, Google it. Okay? Here we go, verse 12. We start with telling about King Eglon, providentially strengthened. Here we go, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again. How sad is that, right? We saw that in verse 7. By the way, look at chapter 4, verse 1, you see it. You look at chapter 6, verse 1, we see it again. Yes, there is this repetition thing that's going on, and it's sad. But, but by the way, while we read this, the fact that the people of Israel did was evil in the sight of the Lord, i.e. again, I, I want to say this honestly to us, church, uh, don't get self-sanctimonious right now. Like, not us. Not like, uh, well, we would never do that. I would never do that. Don't, don't do that. Because the fact of the matter is, is, oh, this is us. This is so us. We could go there so easily, so quickly. So be very open to what's taking place here. Uh, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Middle of verse 12. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against his people. Listen, Moab is not only a neighbor, but a distant relative of the Israelites. Okay, so you can kind of see where, just a round picture on, here on the map, where Moab was at the time. In Exodus 15, we saw that uh, uh, trembling seized the leaders of Moab regarding God's people as they were in the territories. Here at that time, they're trembling. They come through this territory to first move into the promised land. They have to go through it. And Joshua and the Lord provides it for them in Exodus and into Joshua. And now when they are in trembling at the Lord's people, now the Lord has strengthened the king of Moab some decades later. And he is now coming after God's people By the way, in that, if you think that's all very odd that the Lord would do that, um, there's a variety of things we could talk about, but let me toss a couple verses here. Um, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whenever he will. By the way, if you're really anxious about the whole political situation going on right now, you need to learn Daniel 21 verse 1. Oh, and also you might want to post up on a card uh, in front of you, uh, Daniel 2.21. The Lord changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Oh, also Colossians 1 verse 16. The Lord is the one who sets rulers and authorities. By the way, do you remember our whole Revelation series if you were here during that through the latter half of last year where we just saw the Lord's in charge? He allows things to take place just in perfect timing. But, but, but the Lord loves his people and the, the Lord's only about bringing them health and wealth and happiness. I mean, the Lord is about bringing them their best life now. 
Really? That's what it's about? Deuteronomy 8.5, the Lord your God disciplines you. Hebrews 12.6, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Friends, the Lord is not a pampering God, the Lord is a perfecting God. God's greatest desire is not to make you and I happy. God's greatest desire is to make you and I mature in Christ. Remember, we live in a war. And God is using life to mature us, to grow us, to Romans 28 and 29 us, that we would, we, that we would become conformed to be more like Christ. And the people of Israel did what was evil in sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, end of verse 12, because they had done, God's people had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So hold on, Doug. So, so God strengthens King Eglon to lovingly discipline and correct his people. Okay, I get that. But, but now we have the issue of King Eglon had no choice in his actions. He can't be held accountable. And others of you are going, I can't believe he just brought that up. He's putting himself in a corner. Hey, great question. Good question. It's a viable question. It's an intriguing topic, but I'm not going there. Because that's not what the text is about. Listen. The Lord is sovereign. And he does what he chooses to do. And it is perfect and righteous and right. Next. That's the reality of who the Lord is. But I'm just not going to let us get distracted, even though a lot of commentaries want to. I'm not going to let us get distracted there. By the way, I'll just say, study Pharaoh in Exodus and how Pharaoh hardened his heart, and yet at times it says God hardened his heart. So who hardened his heart? Both. But they can't be. Oh, Don't formula God. It is both. I have no problem with that. Verse 13. He gathered Eglon... The king gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Oh, by the way, this is really interesting because it kind of answers the question I just brought up. You see, God strengthened him, but look at the, what's going on in this verse. Who's doing the work? Eglon is. Eglon, in his mind, is gathering to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Eglon is the one who went. Eglon is the one who defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. If you were to ask Eglon who, who made this happen, Eglon would go, I did. If you ask God how this happened, God would say, I strengthened him to do that. Oh, I love the sovereignty of God. That's a good place to be uncomfortable because he's a lot bigger. By the way, city of Palm, it's Jericho. So you, you can see here where they come up into Jericho. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, the Ahud were about to meet as a Benjamite. And, and so they come up Jericho. By the way, oh, Jericho, Joshua chapter 6, some years ago, if you were here, we went through the book of Joshua. And that's where they come in. And God, it was one of the first great victories for God's people in the promised land. It's Jericho. And now God brings... Discipline upon his people in that spot because it's a strategic warring spot. 
Oh, so much has changed in a short period of time. Let's keep reading. Actually, let's not. Give me just a second. By the way, let me bring this back. Notice the non-formula here. Notice the non-formula. We're not told how long the Lord's discipline took before it came. Don't get the idea that God's people in a matter of a week or a month were doing evil in the sight of the Lord and bam, God was right there on top of them because God is quick to crush. The truth of the matter is the Lord is slow. He's long-suffering in it all. But we don't know how long that is. There's no formula. How long was it in verse 7? How long is it in verse 12? Don't know. By the way, look at verse 8. God's people are slaves, are brought as slaves to to, uh, CR for how many years? Eight years. Now they are brought into slaves. We're going to see here in verse 14. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for how many years? 18 years. For 18 years. Eight years, now 18 years. What's the meaning of that? I don't know. God just had that time. Uh, By the way, verse 6, the Lord sold his people to King uh, CR. In verse 12, the Lord strengthens King Eglon. He does it completely different in how it's termed. Listen, our Lord sovereignly wars and pursues in his way and his time. And that's the same today. And if you're feeling like the life and the world and politics and the Lord even is kind of out of control or it's not in the Lord's control, you need to know this. He is in full control. He is. He is. Maybe if you've had something pop in your life this week, like I have, just straight up with you, I'm not all here. You need to know this. You need to know this. The Lord is in control. He is. And so we press ahead. Right? Press ahead. King Eglon providentially strengthened Ehud. Providentially raised up. Let's do some reading. It gets funky. Let's meet Jack Bauer. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Was it real repentance? Or or was it worldly repentance like we saw in Corinthians the other week? I'm going to leave it there. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, a savior. His name is Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. By the way, hidden within the word Benjamite is this idea of on the right hand. Oh, Ehud was a left-handed man. 
There's so much talk about that. One of the things is, who cares? Right now, who cares? I mean, what other books of the Bible, what other people of the Bible do you read? It's like, oh, he's right-handed, or he kicks the ball better with his left foot, or his right, it doesn't matter. No, it matters in the story. And so a lot of discussion ends up getting into this. And by the way, it, there's discussion, of, so you're aware that does, it has the potential to mean, does, was he left-handed because he, he had some physical disability with his right hand? It could potentially have that, and some think that's the case. I'm not so sure. Also, it's talked about with the Benjamites, one of the things in their history is, is that they learned to do things with both hands. They were right and left-handed batters. Okay, why would that be good? Because in that day, most everybody was right-handed. Left-handed was not just unique, it was just like not right in that day. Okay, we're going politically incorrect right now. Okay, but it was kind of viewed that way back in the day, and yet they learned to battle with both hands. And so some are, are, are saying that, well, he, that could be what it's referring to, that he's ambidextrous, or it could be that he was truly just left-handed. Uh, I'm not going to park on it too long because we'll find out why the text tells us. Uh, the people of Israel sent tribute. Just think April 15th. Seriously, with this. It's like the annual tax due. That's what the tribute, this is not like a war move. I'm sorry, what's the movie with the tributes? Hunger Games, it's not that, okay? But, but it's, it's like taxes, so they're sending taxes to the king. By the way, King Eglon is over them, right? Uh, up in verse 14, Israel served them. It carries, in fact, in the Septuagint, it uses the word doulos, which is slave servant here. So they're not just like servant butlers, they're slaves to the king. So they bring in their, their taxes, like slaves have much to bring. Verse 16, and Ehud, it tells us more information about him. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. A cubit length, about 18 inches. Okay, premeditated. Got it? He didn't go down and buy one at the store. He didn't just like have one all the time. He made it for this use. Why would he do that? Because he's about to assassinate someone. And he's doing it such that most likely there's actually no normal handle on this knife. Why? Well, because the text tells us he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. Why would he do that? Because he's left-handed and would grab from there. Why would that be a big deal? We'll find out in just a moment here. Verse 17, and he presented the tribute, the taxes to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon, here we go, very politically incorrect. Eglon was a very fat man. He was stout. He, he was a large man. Verse 18, And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So those that came with him, he's like, Hey, everybody, go ahead and leave now. Verse 19, But he, Ehud, uh, himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. Very interesting that it mentions it here. It mentions it later. I don't have the time today, but there's something when, when an Israelite was reading that, that that just, only, I just, why is that in there? I'm just going to mention it. I think it's because they were serving the Baals and the Asheroth. And it's tagging in here. He walked in past and he went out past. 
I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out fully. He turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Message, it could mean words, it could mean a thing as well. I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, the king did. And all his attendants went out from his presence and he had came to him and he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, so they're like, alone. I have a message. I have a word. I have a thing. By the way, now he inserts from God for you. I think in this, King Eglon is excited about, whoa, I got, I got, I got a message. A message is coming. And, and, and now it's like this message from God. And he's probably in his arrogant kingingness. <laughs> Just made that one up. In that place, he's, he's going along with this. He's kind of just drooling at what's coming his way. More flattery, more stuff. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his what hand? His left hand, and took the sword from his right thigh. And, hold on. How could he get through to the king without going through TSA pre-check? Oh, and they had it in that day. Do not understand, these people are not fools. And sometimes we think that people back in ancient days were like just bumbling buffooneries and everything. Oh, they would pat them down, but, but what's going on? Uh, everyone in the day carried a sword on their left side. Why? Because they were right-handed. So it's most likely in this whole thing that this knife is hidden on the wrong side of the typical pre-check. And they miss it. He's getting through. This has all been planned. Ehud is trying to get his people out. He's trying to get alone with the king here. By the way, who has been a tyrant, rulers, having God's people in slavery for years. Yeah, but wait a second, Doug. God allowed him to do that. True. Keep reading. I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and he had reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt, the handle, also went in after the belly, after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, and he did not pull the sword out of his... It's 18 inches long. And he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and yep, sorry folks, the dung came out. Now, listen here... You're like, hey, you think you're uncomfortable. <laughs> Actually, I'm kind of having some fun with it. I need to today. Um, listen, in a politically correct 2016 worldview, you may be incensed by the fact that it calls Eglon a very fat man. By the way, the word Eglon rhymes with calf, rhymes with fat. It, it's just worse than you think. If you're seeing this from an unfamiliar, uncomfortable with war worldview, you're really incensed that Ehud could assassinate someone like this. Oh, by the way, and especially you're probably bringing up David. King David didn't even do that with Saul, who God put Saul in position. If you're seeing this from a, uh, if you're not seeing this from, you know, remember Revelation says, see Jesus, see the war, see the victory. If you're not seeing this from a see the war, see the victory worldview, you've got this inner conflict going on where it's like there should be no war. Why can't it just be peace on earth? 
If you're seeing it from your relatives or slaves under this evil tyrant for 18 years, you are laughing right now. You really are. And by the way, I think that's the way this is supposed to be read. The God's people later on are reading this and they are seeing that, yes, God brought discipline in this whole scenario. But in this, there is buffoonery going on with the world and what they're doing and, and even Eglon and, and just his physical stature just so representing in that day, I'm just stop the political correctness, but in that day it represented everything. He was just raping from them and taking all for himself in it in that day. And he was ruling over them cruelly and the whole thing with it and Now this assassin comes and takes out the king. And if you're reading it from that day, you are getting Osama bin Laden was just taken out. And when you hear the story of it, you even revel in the victory of it. There's a victory reality here in what's taking place. The Lord has allowed the one he strengthened to bring them discipline to now be removed. That's something to celebrate. Because better days are ahead. Verse 23, then Ian went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, he escaped so what's happening is they came up to this room. I'm not going to go into the physical territory of the, where the, the, the area is, but it's kind of they were in this alone room where Ehud, we'll see here, or Eglon, uh, this, had a restroom there. Here we go. The servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, because uh, Ehud and Eglon had been alone, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Listen, you just don't walk in on the king. Hey, it's awkward enough in the restrooms, okay? I'm sorry, but this is just the fact of the matter. It's awkward enough there. And now you, don't, you just don't walk in on the king. Let him read his Reader's Digest. Just leave him alone. Sorry, I'm just going there. <laughs> but that's the fact of what's happening. Verse 25, and they waited till they were embarrassed. (laughs) Oh, I needed this text. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key, opened them, and they laid their Lord dead on the floor. And by the way, honestly, dead on the floor, blood all over, and excrement out. There's victory in that. Seriously. There's real victory in that. Because by the way, the people of Moab had every opportunity to come to be able to see Yahweh as the Lord of all. And this wicked, wicked man has met the Lord. Verse 26, Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped the Seira. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim 
And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me. By the way, I'd really encourage you to underline this. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. I want to pause right here and explain some of the things. There's all kinds of views on this. A lot of commentators think that Ehud was really this bad assassin, that he was deceptive, that he was off. Whether it's a smaller perspective or not, I don't quite know, but I'm just going to say this. I don't think that's the case. I'm grabbing up from verse 20 where he says, I have a message from the Lord for you. We're not told that God told him to do this in this. I don't know how it all went down. I don't want to piece together what the text doesn't tell us to. But there are a couple pieces in here. And now after this, after he leaves and he goes out and he tells God's people, he says, follow after me. The Lord has given the king into our hands. Now, now whether he's manipulating it, whether he's working it, whether he's doing whatever in it, I, I can't say with grand uh, clarity in it, but, but I have a hard time with those, are saying, those that are saying that Ehud was just a corrupt man and, and was just not being uh, anything, uh, uh, was full deceit and manipulative. I don't think anything he said was untrue. There's different people, different views on it. That, that, that's where I'm at. But the Lord has given your enemies into your hands. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. By the way, that word strong there carries back to the same idea of the word that's used in describing it and the very fat, but it's very rotund. These were, it's, 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 it's word playing here. It's helping the reader to understand. Listen, these were serious dudes. Able-bodied men and not a man escaped, not one. We are talking about 100% deliverance from the Lord. And lastly, God's people delivered, verse 30. So Moab, the entirety of Moab, was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the, hand had re- and the land had rest for how many years? 80 years. By the way, be very careful right now not to formulaic everything. Like, yep, that's the way it is. That's the way it works. You repent, and the Lord makes everything great. Listen, you repent and the Lord will clearly restore. But you know what? A person may repent and life may be really, really hard. And we in our American viewpoint, we kind of grab the things we want to grab and miss the things we want to miss. And by the way, why 80 years? Because last time, over in verse 11, they had rest for 40 years. Well, it's double that because it's the second story. (laughs) I don't know why, because the Lord decided 80 years of rest. Let's leave things in the Lord's hands that are the Lord's things. Let's not take things and make them what they aren't. This is telling what happened then. And yes, our God is constant. And yes, our God works in unconstant reality, shapes, sizes, forms, and situations. And by the way, that should give you and me real hope. 
because there is no certain person profile that the Lord can use. The Lord wants to use every one of us in unique and creative ways for his common glory. Well, let me leave with this. First, do not walk away thinking it's biblical to be an assassin. Okay? That's not what I've said. Okay? Not that. By the way, don't come to the conclusion here as well that if, when I come to Christ and I repent, it's going to result in my prosperity and ease and comfort for the eight, next 80 years. It's not what the text is saying. Also, don't walk away thinking that the Lord works the exact same way in everyone's life. It's not what it is. One commentator said, The Lord is at no shortage of ways to rescue his people. He repeatedly rescues his people in ways they could have never imagined. Another commentator says, The Lord is in charge of his people's world. History is his story. We are not to be surprised if he chooses the most unlikely methods, even if we find them left-handed. And a third commentator said, God is a who would have thought of that God. God. Who would have thought of that? Let me finish with this. Do take away a challenge to think rightly about who he is. Do take that away. Listen, we're to see life, we're to see processes of life, we're to see responding in life, we're to see doing life from a place of right thinking. We, right thinking is one, seeing him as totally sovereign. He is in charge, you guys. And the media may say, especially with the election stuff going on, media may say, it's just insane. It is. It is. Under his authority. Under him. Also, he is the deliverer warrior of his people. He is. He can deliver people from their sin towards death. He can deliver people from their situations. But the Lord in his sovereign delivery as a sovereign warrior sometimes also allows us to remain there. Sometimes it's for discipline to bring us back. Sometimes it's for purposes we don't even know what yet is to come. But the Lord is doing something in it. Have you scratched your head this week and gone, where did that come from and why? I did. Trust me. Maybe I'll tell you another day. Maybe for you, but know this. He is a sovereign warrior. And also finally with it, he is my long-suffering Savior who pursues after my growth and my maturity. He is pursuing after you for your salvation, for your growth, for your maturity. It's about much more than him just getting done with his timeline. He's growing us in it. Well, today I needed, and I hope you needed, to savor a story, a real story of what the Lord has done. And so, Lord, I'm going to leave it there, and may we walk away 
encouraged, hopeful, maybe challenged, maybe convicted. All of those are good things. Lord, I would pray that uh, we would see you rightly here in this crazy, this assassin story. There's a number of things in here we could just ask questions about and talk about and laugh about and interact about. And yet, Lord, this is ultimately all about you doing a work in your people and in the people around you. And God, I would just pray in all of this that we would right now with life where it's at, stop and remind ourselves who you are. Help us to think rightly. Help us to be people in your truth and of your truth. Help us to be a people that does that together, that puts our arms around each other and our heads around each other and helps each other in times of need, in times of hurt, in times of war, in times of joy and celebration. And God, help us to remember you work in ways that only you can work. I just pray we would be amazed by who you are. You are so creative. You are so unique. You are so perfect. And we camp on who you are. In Christ's name. Amen.